Good morning. We're a little light this morning, so uh, you, you actually need to say good morning a little louder to make up for everybody missing. So let's try that again. Good morning. Thank you. Um, so obviously we're, we're already settling into a Christmas mood and mindset here at Griggs. I'm going to help those of you that uh, aren't so thrilled about that. Uh, we are starting with a Christmas passage in Matthew chapter 2, but we're not going to stay there the whole day. So uh, this morning... Uh, as Pastor Mitch has already mentioned, we're taking a brief break from our normal series, which is on Acts, to focus on Christmas, which is only right for us to do so. It is the birth of our Savior, so we should at least focus on this at least a little bit. And you stole some of my thunder, by the way. I was going to explain Advent. You know what? I'm still going to do it. Because a lot of people in our tradition of Christianity is completely unfamiliar with what Advent is. So, for instance, if you grew up in a Baptist church, you probably have never celebrated Advent. And that's okay. Uh, it's a different tradition, and that's fine. So let me give you some information about what Advent is before we actually jump into the passage. So Advent, as Pastor Mitch mentioned, is a Latin word. Well, it comes from a Latin word that simply means coming. And it is traditionally celebrated this time every year uh, to, to first off remind us of the birth of Christ. But it does a little bit more than that, and you'll see that in this morning's sermon. In fact, you'll, you'll see that overall the next, what, four weeks? Uh, so we'll start this week with a, a theme and that theme is hope. Uh, it is the same theme that every church that celebrates Advent would be focused on today, hope. Uh, next week, if I remember correctly, would be preparation or prophecy. The third week would be joy or peace. And then the following week would be love or adoration. Uh, and the typical idea is that as we work our way through these themes, preparing our hearts for Christmas, we would... First off, remember his birth, and secondly, look forward to his second coming. So this isn't just focused on Christmas, this is focused on Jesus' coming. So this morning, uh, we're doing a little bit of both. We're going to look back at Christmas and his birth, but a bulk of our service will be focused on what's coming in the future. So like I said, we're not completely in Christmas mood today. Uh, it's about half and half. So th those of you that aren't thrilled that we are Christmassy, you can thank me later. I want to read chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 11 again, uh, to set the stage and set the tone of what's going on. So starting in verse 1 of chapter 2 of the book of Matthew. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. 
Then Herod, when he had privily called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child, and when ye have found him, bring me word again, that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed, and lo, the, the star which they saw in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, sorry, I lost my spot. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Let's pray. Father God, we're thankful for you. We're thankful that you sent your son to be born of a virgin uh, in a lowly place to live a perfect sinless life and to save us from our sins. Now, Father, I pray that you use the words that I speak today to bring glory to your name, to convict those that need convicted, and to encourage those that need encouragement. Father God, we love you, and we pray these things in your Son's name. Amen. And so I mentioned just briefly that this week's theme is on hope, and we need to spend a little bit of time defining what hope actually means. Because when we think of the term hope, we think of it in a different manner than what the Bible says hope is. So for instance, when we use the term hope, we actually mean something similar to I wish rather than I hope. So if you are a parent, if you go out to eat after lunch today, uh, which let's, I mean after church today for lunch, uh, which let's be honest, most of you will, you are hoping that your kids behave. And you are hoping that your kids won't spend the whole meal screaming like a banshee. That is a good hope, but that is not what the word hope actually means. That is more of a wish. I wish my kids behaved, and I wish my kids didn't scream like a banshee. Uh, I know, Pastor Mitch, you've mentioned that Marin really likes to eat white bread for everything. So part of your wishing is that she expands her horizons a little bit and try something else, right? So if you're a parent, you wish that your kids would behave a certain way. If you're a college student, you might be wishing that class gets canceled tomorrow. Maybe uh, you're hoping that the rest of the semester gets canceled tomorrow, that you don't have to turn projects in. If you are an adult, perhaps you go out to eat today after, wow, I'm struggling with words this morning. Maybe you're going out to eat right after church, like most of us, maybe you're hoping that you don't get stuck sitting next to the family with the screaming banshees. That's a legitimate hope. I'm sorry, that's a legitimate wish. As an adult, we wish that this week at work is better than last week. But that is not hoping, according to the Bible. When the Bible tells us to have hope, it isn't telling us to wish for things. In fact, the Bible's definition of hope has nothing to do with wishing. We're not wishing that Jesus will come and get us before the uh, during the rapture. We are not wishing for heaven if we believe. A lot of times we use the following definition, and I think it's legitimate for hope. 
That hope is a confident expectation. It's a confident expectation in what the Bible says. That when we are told that Jesus is preparing a place for us, we can legitimately believe that because he will actually do that. In other words, we can expect God to keep his word. So we're going to study this biblical hope in two ways. Part of this is looking at the story that we just read. So part of this will be spent looking at examples of what hope looks like. And the, the ending of this message will look at a little bit of um, what our object of hope is, or what that object should be. And hopefully by the time you leave this morning, you will come to the realization that Jesus is worth having hope in. So in Matthew 2, verses 1 through 5, we're thrown in the midst of a narrative. I don't know if you've noticed this, but Matthew 1 starts off with a genealogy. You know, it's the part that you typically skip. It's the part that is telling you so-and-so begat so-and-so, and this person begat so-and-so. And like I said, we typically skip it. There is a meaning for that, but I'm not going to jump into that this morning. After the genealogy, it jumps straight into this story of Jesus' birth. It jumps straight into him being born, and then it jumps straight into this king named Herod wanting to kill him. And then, obviously, wise men. In verse 1, we learn some significant things. That is, some significant things that will help us put all of this together. We learn that Jesus was born in Bethlehem which, as Matthew 1 teaches, is to fulfill prophecy. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but a lot of our religion exists because of prophecy. So let's take a time, just a brief amount of time, to look at some prophecies that Jesus fulfills. Because if he didn't fulfill these prophecies, we would be worshiping the wrong person. So a couple prophecies that Jesus fulfills. Uh, let's see, Micah 5.2 says that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. In fact, it's referenced here in Matthew 2. Micah makes, the, makes it a point to explain that the town is insignificant. It is the town that if you can help it, you are not even going to bother driving through it. And yet that is where Jesus is born. We know that the Messiah had to be from the, the lineage of multiple people. So we know that from the Old Testament. In Genesis 12, in the Abrahamic covenant, God promises Abraham that all of the nations would be blessed by his seed. Genesis 49, we're told that the scepter, which symbolizes the one who is to reign, will come from the tribe of Judah. And in essence, the writer of Genesis is narrowing down who this Messiah is. In 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 through 13, we learn that David's offspring will have an eternal kingdom because through David's seed, the Messiah would be born. We know that Jesus had to have been born of a virgin. That's in Isaiah 7, 14, that the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call his name Emmanuel. It could be said that Hosea 11.1 1 is an additional prophecy about the Messiah eventually coming through Egypt, 
which he does a little bit later in this passage. When Herod determines to kill him, his parents take him to hide in Egypt. And we can go on and on and on about different prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. I've chosen to only look at ones about his birth because it's Christmas. And already he's fulfilled six prophecies. In verse 1, we also learn that the king's name is Herod. It might seem like a minor detail, but it is important. First off, it tells us when this happened. Uh, if we don't know when it happened, then it, it kind of makes it a little easier for people to critique it. But we know that it happened in the reign of Herod. It sets a specific time frame, and it leads up to the fulfillment of the Egypt prophecy that I just spoke about. We know that in the particular verse, this is talking about Herod the Great. And we have to make that distinction because I, I don't know if people in that time period were just not creative with names, but they tended to name people the same thing. So Herod the Great had a son and his name was Herod. And then there are other Herods that existed as well. So we have to make that distinction that this is Herod the Great. And we know from history that Herod the Great was a huge supporter of the Roman Empire. He spent tons and tons and tons of money building buildings for the Roman Empire. Uh, he built monuments. He also spent a ton of money rebuilding the temple for the Jewish people. But before we think of him as some sort of saint, let's remember that this is the same Herod who killed off the previous leadership because he was worried they might take control. And he also ordered the deaths of all the children ages two and under. And third, in verse one, we learn that there are wise men from the east traveling to meet Jesus. And I'm not going to get into the argument about whether there are more than three. Uh, that really isn't the point, and we could get caught up in that all day long. It really doesn't matter if there were three or if there were 50 wise men. What matters is that these men traveled from the east to come and worship Jesus. I'm also not going to get into the argument of where these wise men came from or what countries they represented, or if they were really kings, not just wise men, because again, that really isn't the point of the passage. If they are simply wise men, then they are employed by kings who would utilize them for their wisdom and their knowledge of ancient texts. So in any case, we know that these wise men come from the east and they ask Herod to see the one-born king of the Jews. In other words, they're coming to Herod, who is the king of the Jews, to see if he knows where the new king of the Jews is. I can see why he was upset. And I hope you can too. Uh, if you are in charge of something, if you uh, say you own a business, and someone comes up to you and asks to speak to your son to make a decision before you. In other words, they're more concerned with who the next ruler is and what the next ruler says than they are about the current ruler. 
it is, it could be seen as disrespectful. And it could be seen as uh, maybe a dig at his uh, reign. And obviously, any person would be offended. They reference this prophecy when they mention, for we have seen his star and are come to worship him. Now, of course, Herod is troubled from all this, again, because he is the current king, and they're looking for the next king. And he gathers all of his advisors together in order to figure out where Christ is supposed to be born. And they cite this prophecy from Micah 5.2 that he is going to be born in Bethlehem, which is an insignificant town. And Herod, because of his sinful ways, decides that he is going to slaughter innocent children to prevent the, the next king from taking over. Now, if you're like me, you're asking why I'm even emphasizing any of this. It seems like an odd thing to emphasize. You know, this is typically the story that we read and then we move on. If you read it carefully, and this is why we're focusing on it, every single person in this story is acting out of hope. There is no doubt to any of these people that the prophecy was going to be fulfilled. They had faith. They had faith that the prophecies in the past were eventually going to be fulfilled. They actually believed that. And because they believed in the prophecy, they had hope. True, biblical hope. So just in this one passage, we see wise men traveling great distances to worship a baby that they think is going to be the king of Israel based off of a prophecy. They don't know much, but they know what has been said. So they hope and they walk to go and see him. Remember, they don't have vehicles, so they're literally walking to go and see this baby. They traveled miles and miles and miles by foot to see a baby that was prophesied about hundreds of years before this moment. They had hope in the prophecy. Herod, despite acting sinfully, also had hope. Have you ever thought of this? He knew of the prophecy, and he knew of the one that would be born. And in jealousy, he sought to stop that from happening. So he had to have believed the prophecy himself. He obviously believed that the prophecy was probably true, even if he didn't have hope in the coming king. He did have hope in himself. And his hope in himself causes him to murder a bunch of people. So in his sin, Herod is actually showing us what our modern-day definition of hope is. He hopes he can stop the prophecy. And he wishes that he can stop it. He had hope in himself. Not in this passage, but in Luke chapter 2, we see an angel coming to a group of shepherds. They're all in a field, and mind you, they did get a message directly from an angel, and they did see this host of angels singing. 
So, you know, sometimes we give them a bad rap and we're like, well, of course they went to see Jesus. They saw all these angels. They'd be stupid not to, but let's be honest. If we were camping and we saw, well, and first off, I'm not camping, so uh, don't assume I'm camping with you. You're camping by yourself and I'm doing something else. Anyways, if you're camping and you suddenly see an angel, multiple angels, and this angel tells you to go to this place, how many of you are actually going to listen? Let's be honest. If that were to happen today, if that happened to me, my first thought would be I ate something bad yesterday, and now I'm hallucinating. For those of you that are camping, maybe you picked up some mushrooms, and those mushrooms just weren't good. My first reaction would not be, yeah, I'm going to go follow that, and I'm going to go listen to that. I'm going to think that I'm hallucinating, that what's going on isn't actually happening, and yet they got up, and they listened to these angels. They had faith in the prophecies, and they had hope in what was to come. They all acted in faith and hope, and mind you, Herod's case was in misplaced faith and hope. The Bible is filled with example after example after example of people who had faith and acted in hope. Just a brief run-through. Apart from the Christmas story, you open up Genesis and you read through Genesis, the, not the first story that we read, but we do read multiple stories about, say, Abraham and his wife who, despite acting sinfully the first time, still had faith that they would receive a child. They still hoped in that. We see Moses acting in faith and hope after hearing from God as God was speaking to him through this burning bush. Uh, again, mind you, we might say, yeah, well, God was speaking to him through a burning bush, but again, let's be honest, how many of us would just assume we ate bad mushrooms? He has hope that God will accomplish what he promised that he would do. So he does it. We see Joseph, despite being sold into slavery and accused of attempting to sleep with his master's wife, acting with faith and hope that God had his best, well, that God had everything under control. We see David after sinning with Bathsheba. And after being confronted by the prophet, we see him repenting and hoping in the one who forgives sin in Psalm 32. Keep all of this in mind, and we're going to jump passages. Again, so for those of you that aren't thrilled we're in Christmas, we're now leaving the Christmas mindset. Jump over to Hebrews chapter 6. And that's Hebrews 6. If you're like me and you're thinking that all these examples are great, but they're examples that are all people that have different situations than I do. Of course they had faith. They spoke to God directly. Or of course they had faith. They spoke to a burning bush. Of course they believed. If you're like me, you're thinking, none of that has ever happened to me. I've never spoken to angels. I've never spoken to a burning bush. Well, I mean... Sometimes when you sit by a campfire, you kind of get into the mood and you start talking to it. But that's not a common thing, and it's probably not something you should admit. 
In Hebrews, the author has explained that God has taken the place of the sacrifice needed for salvation. That is the whole premise of Hebrews. He encourages them to all start on this process of spiritual maturity through sanctification. So by the time you get to Hebrews 6.13, he has already encouraged them to remember that God is not unrighteous. He will remember the good things that they do. He will not forget their work and their labor of love. And he encourages us to not be slothful, but be followers and inheritors of that promise. And then he references a specific point in history. But first, let's read Hebrews 6, starting in verse 13. For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely, blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife, wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay, lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil, whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus, made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The author of Hebrews 6 is referencing back to the Abrahamic covenant. We've already mentioned it briefly, so I'm not going to go in such detail that you'll fall asleep. But in Genesis 15, there's a ceremony taking place between Abraham and God. And to us, it's a weird ceremony because we don't do anything like this at all. Uh, it involves cutting animals in half, placing them on sides, and then walking through them. And it is the weirdest thing that we've ever heard of, if you're not familiar with it. But it, is, it was a custom during their time to do this for vows, so for promises, for oaths. Now, when we think of oaths, we typically, well, honestly, we don't really typically think of oaths. Uh, the only reason I'm thinking of one right now is because we just witnessed a wedding yesterday. That is an oath. But we did not cut up animals and lay them in the aisle and have them walk down through it. <laughs> Same reaction, Tammy. Thank God that we don't do that anymore. We're told that in Genesis 15, since God could not swear by anyone greater than himself, he swore to himself. So he promises to himself and to Abraham that he will accomplish what this covenant is. And like I said, the best example of any type of oath that we have today is marriage. It is an oath taken between two people in the presence of God. And because God sees their promise, he holds them accountable for their promise to each other. Another example, uh, which is a little less thought of when we think of this, is anytime we write and sign a contract. You do realize that when you sign a contract, you are entering into an oath with the company or person that you're writing that contract with. So in other words, you're essentially saying, I promise that I will do this if you do this. 
So if, you, uh, if you've ever bought a vehicle, this is a perfect example of this. When you go to sign your contract to buy this vehicle, you are promising, if, you're, if you have a loan, to pay for that car. If you're buying it outright, the person who previously owned the car is promising to give you that car for the money that you give them. That's why when uh, we sign contracts, it's a little harder to sue people if you're in the wrong. Typically, the court system is going to side with the person who the contract says is right. I don't know if you're picking up on this, though. When we write contracts and sign contracts, there is an entity greater than us that backs that contract up. The court system, the government, backs up our contracts. Well, God cannot make an oath to the government because the government is not greater than he is. God cannot do any of that because he's greater than all things. He is the greatest entity. And that's the whole beauty behind this covenant. That God, the greatest being, settles all things. Hebrews 6.18 says that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. In other words, because of who God is, because of his character, and because it's impossible for God to lie because of his character, we have strong consolation. That word consolation can be translated as encouragement. To hold fast to the hope set before us. In other words, put as simply as I possibly can, because of who God is, we can have hope. The author of Hebrews is encouraging us to remember the promise given to Abraham. And in turn, he's reminding us that we also have a covenant with God. That covenant is the covenant that he promises us through salvation. As Romans 10.9 states that if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's also going to include other promises that Jesus has made to us. We are assured that Jesus will complete the work that he has started in us. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. We're promised that Jesus will return. We're assured that there is a coming day of the Lord. We're promised in John 14, 3, that Jesus is preparing a place for us. And his encouragement is this, that the hope that we have in all of these promises isn't in the promise itself. It's in the person who made the promise. We have this sure and steadfast anchor for our soul, the hope that enters into the Holy of Holies. <coughs> Excuse me. And none of that hope 
is based on us whatsoever. It rests completely on Jesus, who is that great high priest after the order of Melchizedek. In other words, the hope that Jesus will complete the work, the hope that Jesus has saved us, the hope that Jesus will accomplish all of these promises has nothing to do with us. It's all about what Jesus has done on the cross. Now let's start tying everything together with some application. Because we've, we've looked at a number of passages already, so you might just be lost in passages, and that's okay. Let's try and tie them all together. I started this morning's message by explaining a little bit about Advent. That Advent is a time to remember the birth of Jesus, but it is also a time to look forward to the second coming of Jesus. And today, this day that is set aside to focus on hope, allows us to look at both the past and the the future pretty easily. We saw in the New Testament in Matthew that there are a number of people that are all acting out of faith and hope in the prophecies. They truly believe that these things are going to happen. Because they believe those things are going to happen, they did certain things. All of these people, the shepherds that went to see Christ, which is actually in Luke, not Matthew, Uh, The wise men from the east, because they saw the prophesied star. Mary and Joseph, they all acted because they had hope that the prophecies were true. They had hope in their beliefs and their faith. Well, my question then this morning is, what is your faith and hope in? Seriously, I know it sounds like something we always ask and something we always say, but... Let's narrow it down as as narrow as we can. What do you actually believe in? What do you have faith in? First off, do you even have faith? It's a vital question because without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without faith, there's really nothing to have hope in. So do you have faith in Jesus Christ? And if you don't, what's stopping you? As far as I can tell, from the passages that we looked at today, Jesus is actually pretty reliable. He is more reliable than anything you think that's reliable. Far more reliable than what we could probably even imagine that he's reliable. He keeps his promises. I don't know if you noticed that one. He promised to come, so he did. He's promised to come back, so he will. Jesus is consistently reliable because Jesus keeps his promises. Now, if you do have faith in Jesus, if you are a genuine believer in him, do you act like it? Do you have genuine belief? Do you have genuine hope, genuine faith in who he is and what he says he is? On a very practical level, if the Holy Spirit prompted you to do something, would you do it? Let's be honest. Again, uh, if an angel came and spoke to me, 
My first reaction would not be, this is probably an angel and I should listen to him. My first reaction is probably going to be, I'm hallucinating. And yet those shepherds had no issue with getting up and going because they believed. If you have faith, belief, hope in Jesus, does your life resemble that? How's this? If, if you doubt the validity of your faith, which you know, we all do at some point, it is okay to doubt if you actually take the effort to find answers. Are you doubting the validity of your faith? Or if you want to put it in a different way, are you asking yourself, is it all worth it? The shepherds, wise men, and even Herod, who acted sinfully, all acted because they believed that the prophecies were true. And with the exception of Herod, who was hoping he could stop the prophecy, the rest of them actually believed that those prophecies would happen and they had hope in them. Do you realize that our faith in Jesus Christ is based on the character of an almighty, all-knowing, all-wonderful, all-loving God? He has been here since before time even existed. And he has made promises and multiple promises to multiple people, and he has actually kept them. You can read through scripture of all the promises he made people. And you can point to where a lot of them are actually fulfilled. He is a God of love, compassion, and grace. And he shows that to everybody. Now, the same God who is filled with love, compassion, and grace has made a promise to all of us that if we believe and repent from our sins, he will come and get us. Which means we don't need to live in fear. We have no fear in death because we know what's next is far better. We have no fear in what the future has for us because Jesus has already made the promises and he will keep them. That also means that we need to submit it all to God. And we need to submit to everything that God tells us through his word. Because he is reliable and because he can't lie, because he has told us that he has our best interest in mind and in heart, we need to submit to everything he says. As we move into this Christmas season, let's be sure to reflect on his love, mercy, grace, and his faithfulness, which gives us hope. In short, have hope in Jesus because Jesus keeps his promises and because of who Jesus is. I'm going to close off with prayer. Uh, we're going to sing one song to prepare our hearts for communion, and then Pastor Mitch will lead communion. Father God, we're thankful for everything that you do for us. We're thankful that you are a God of love, hope, mercy, faithfulness, that you care for each one of us. Father God, we're thankful 
that you sent your son to be born of a virgin, that through his birth he fulfilled prophecy after after prophecy. Through his life he fulfilled even more prophecies. And through his death he has promised us eternal life to those who would believe. Father, I pray that you help us strengthen our faiths on the truth that you are reliable. We love you. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.